Yeah. All right, we'll get we'll get started here uh, with our song, and then uh, and then we can uh, hopefully uh, the tide will rise. There'll be some more people coming. I think there's people in the courtyard and and elsewhere. And Jan is here to play for us. And uh, you know what we always want is is like with the hymns we sing in the church, just. Uh, is to be highly conscious, of, if there's anything very Calvinistic, it's that we're supposed to be highly conscious of words, and especially uh, as um, uh, the ideas behind words and what's being said by these hymns, because these hymns are well-crafted, uh, especially these long-standing old ones, are uh, well-crafted hymns that really speak to the, the orthodoxy of our tradition. All right, so... Here we go. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own bloody bond. And for her life he died Elect from every nation Yet one o'er all the earth Her charter of salvation One Lord, one faith, one birth One holy name she blesses Partakes one holy food and to one hope she presses with every grace can do. Though with a scornful wonder men see her sorrow pressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keen. Their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. The church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to Though there be those that hate her, false and her pale, against the foe or traitor, she ever shall prevail. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest yet she on earth hath union with God the three in one 
and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. Oh, happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace and we, them the meek and lowly, I may dwell with thee. Thanks, Jan. You make this so much more pretty than I <laughs> Great. Hey, uh, by the way, by water and the word, you see that with the big W? Did you hear that in the sermon today? Yes, sir. What was it in the sermon? Remember where... God where, makes where, creation with his word. He, he, is, he says, uh, let, there, let there be light. And, and it, he doesn't create light after the, you know, doing saying that. He, the word creates light. That's one of the... Just this key... You know, uh, the, the, this is one of the great truths of Christianity is that it's heavily oriented toward communication, towards speaking, toward words. And this is one of the things Calvin really emphasized and why education is so important and the reading of the word and the knowing <coughs> of the Bible and being able to sort of think about words and such. We're going to be emphasizing this here <coughs> for today and next week uh, as we close off this class, which is, is how you know our, our goal in this class has been to understand Calvin, and then, uh, not fully, but his, his basics, uh, understand a bit about this age of Reformation, but then to sort of look at where we stand today, especially how we don't have to live in that antagonistic world of the Revol- uh, Reformation anymore, and we as a churches, churches here on earth, in hope of that church we're pressing toward, uh, can get along, and get along well. Okay? So, uh, why don't we have a prayer? You want to pray for us? Sure. Pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our ears to the words that Rick's going to say, open our minds to new knowledge, and um, have a wonderful weekend with you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 (laughs) Okay. we're gonna. What we're doing here is uh, a look at at the 300 years, 400 years of Calvinistic tradition, and how it fits into evangelicalism, and uh, and we'll see that uh, uh, it's a it's a very interesting story, and our church fits deeply within this tradition as an evangelical church, which also has a deeply what we call reformed. Foundation, and this gets at what is this new reform movements that are going on now. And then I want to talk uh, next week uh, to point out, and this is very important for the Calvinist tradition. It's always a church and state tradition. The Calvinistic, remember, Geneva was highly integrated, church and state. Uh, the idea of separation of church and state is very Calvinistic, right? The church ministers should not be magistrates. Magistrates should not be ministers. We're not going to mix the church and the state. But the church and the state have the same foundation in this world underneath, underneath heaven. And so there's a lot of entanglement. And so we'll talk a bit about that today. But we'll see uh, next week how especially our, our, our United States foundations actually do have some real Calvinistic uh, principles in the way we understand the people, democracy. And there's a new book out which... This book here, and I 
Highly recommend you get it. You can get it on Kindle. You can get it, get it one day. Amazon will get it to you. Tracy McKenzie's the chair of the department, or just left the chair. He's, he's sort of the star at Wheaton College right now. And a great historian, I think, and he has written this, The Founders and the Future of American Democracy, but it's about the, we have, how we have to understand people, uh, how we understand our democracy, and that there's a ways that oftentimes in, the, in America today we are confused about when we talk about democracy, and we're not talking in the ways that the Founding Fathers actually thought about it. So, so it's a, it, I hope that next week will be very helpful for us as citizens, uh, and today will be help, very helpful to us as a church, all right? So, uh, in general, you guys, many of you have been here the whole time. Do you have any big thoughts or questions or ideas about what we've been talking about that you want want to reiterate or clarify? Yes. I was just thinking last week, I guess it was, there's a Lutheran church because of Luther. We don't have a Calvin church because of Calvin. <laughs> yeah. Why? Yeah. It'd be a bad name. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, come on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the very interesting. That's a very interesting. Uh, Luther and the German church actually called themselves the Evangelical Church, a gospel. But it, it has taken on the name after uh, they greatly venerate this founding sort of character. And so it took on the name Lutheran. And there's a lot of Lutheran varieties of churches that are actually not called Lutheran because like uh, Sue and my parents-in-law, they went to a covenant church. It was Swedish. It's, they didn't go. I did. You did. I was married in it. We were married in the covenant church. The covenant church has v- really very Lutheran qualities, even though it's not called uh, Lutheran mm-hmm. church. So, so Luther also, like Calvin, has a, a great expansive sort of thing. Calvin's greatness really is tied to that book he wrote. And that book gave a lot of foundation to a lot of churches. So the, even the, the Episcopal Church underneath Queen Elizabeth, they wrote these 39 articles under this Archbishop Cranmer. It's very Calvinistic, you know, very full of predestination and, and all sorts of things we've been talking about. So uh, it's, I like it that the fact that we don't have a Church of Calvin, you know, and, uh, and uh, I think that... Um, most Lutherans are a little embarrassed now because when you name a church after a human person, that human person is a fallen, sinful person. And Luther has many aspects of his life which we don't want to emulate. So, uh, I don't think Calvin would want Right. Calvin would not want a church named, you know, the Church of St. Calvin or Third Church of Calvin or anything like that. And I don't think Luther would actually want a church named after himself either. But so... But we do have a Lutheran tradition. Yeah, We also have a Wesleyan tradition, too. And I don't think John Wesley would want a church sort of tied to him so by name like that. Because these are people who are, are Christian leaders who are ultimately pretty... They're cocky, but they're also humble in the sense that they know that they are not saints. And that, mm-hmm. the, you know, that, you know, the church should be something other than about them. Mm-hmm. They're not cult leaders. You know, cult leaders want to... Make the church about me, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas Wesley, Calvin, Luther, these are great people who, who really did see the church as something so much bigger than just themselves. Yeah, so, yeah. But that's a good question, man, the Lutheran church. Yeah, 
I guess what I see there is, is it's just showing how many people Luther yeah. inclined or, or yeah. inspired. Yeah. And, and, and the Lutheran church shades over into being ethnic. <coughs> uh, German, Swedish, Danish, that kind of thing. Uh, whereas the Calvin church, uh, because it's based really around this book, you know, he's French. <coughs> he's French, you know. <laughs> and... Uh, and so we don't really follow an ethnic tradition with the Calvinistic tradition. It's then we should call him Calvin. <laughs> yeah. We? You know, uh, one of the things that's funny, I, I mentioned this at the beginning, is uh, France in the 16th century is not organized as one country. Um, mm. And so, so he's from Picardy. I don't, know, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but, but they actually spoke a dialect of French which is completely different than, you know, the, than French today. Mm -hmm. And so he had to actually learn, as he went to school, the sort of higher French of, of what we call French. So, so it's, a, it's very complex back then, but it are these ethnic groups, you know, and stuff. And, and he was very much a, ethnically tied to that northern French, France area. Any, any thoughts about, yes? Calvin promote education quite a bit because of the way he thought about yeah. things. Yes, and um, very, very much. But in the in uh, the University of Geneva, which becomes very famous and very important for spreading Calvinism, actually comes after he died. Uh, he did not. He is not really a founder of a of a university, which you would think he would be. Actually, um, Luther was a college professor. You know. Uh, Remember, Calvin's pretty much a lawyer who became a type of elder pastor. He's never ordained or anything. Oh wow! So it's a he's a sort of odd character in this in this situation. But he did not found the university. Um, but the University of Geneva becomes a very important university for for the role of you know, reformed tradition. So which churches then? Now that you're talking about, would be more tend towards Calvinism? You just said, well, the Presbyterians, obviously, the West. I don't know. I mean, how right. Do, how uh, if we look back, especially into the century after Calvin, uh, it would be the uh, English uh, churches in general that were Protestant, uh, were heavily oriented toward Calvinism. So the Episcopal Church in the 16th, 17th century, and then also the, uh, the Presbyterian churches, uh, and that was heavily oriented towards Scotland. Uh, and then the con what are called Congregationalist churches. And the difference between them is not theology. The difference is how they organized. Episcopals had the bishops, the Presbyterians had the elder group, and then the Congregationalists. Each individual congregation runs itself. And so the early Baptists were Calvinistic Reformed because they were come out of that Congregationalist tradition. By the 19th century, things really begin sort of to spread around. John Wesley's uh, father and the tradition John Wesley was raised in would be very Calvinistic. And really, when you read John Wesley, he's extraordinarily Calvinistic. But he inaugurates a new tradition, which is called Wesleyan, uh, largely because of the free will predestination thing. And uh, so uh, we have a Wesleyan tradition. So for the first few hundred years, that, that, uh, the, those books, the Institutes of Christian Religions, were profoundly influential throughout Reformed churches. And then today, uh, I would say we 
talk more in line of a reformed tradition. Yeah, it's, it's, it's broader than just Calvin Calvinism, though he's still a right. part of it. But in those early years, you also include the French Huguenots. Yeah, right. And oh, yeah. In Calvin's mind, Calvin's day, he's hoping to lead the French Reformation. Right, right. And that's the one that gets squashed yeah. the, the most. Yeah, the Catholic king... Uh, goes after those Huguenots, and then the Huguenots come to, Cali- to, not to California, to the United States, and so you get strong Huguenots uh, coming into Delaware and Pennsylvania, and, and those traditions are uh, back east, are uh, French Reformed. True, when I was a young pastor, we would track numbers. Our three largest presbyteries were, we would say Presbyterians are the thickest. Mm-hmm. You decide what you mean by the thickest. Yeah. But <laughs> we're um, Pittsburgh and Philadelphia were one and two, because that's where the Scots-Irish went. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was the Scots that took mm-hmm. the East Coast, yeah. then the Scots-Irish took by Pennsylvania, yeah. and the French Huguenots were in the Carolinas. Yeah. And Charlotte was our third largest Presbyterian. And that was, so in the 1970s and 80s, when I'm doing this, kind of like, how, how does this come about? It's still because of immigration patterns to early America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Kirk has just given me a book on Daniel Boone that assigned me to read over Christmas. Daniel Boone was a... S- Scottish Presbyterian come over in the 1730s. His family is rooted back there, and that, that whole Shenandoah Valley and all that. Okay, so let's Methodist. The Methodists or the West follow John Wesley. Okay, uh, so uh, uh, let's move on. But but if you have some more questions, especially next week and stuff, when we close this off, uh, let's you know fill in the gaps, like the question about universities and stuff. Yeah, Calvin. Yeah, Calvin's fascinating. At Calvinistic universities, Calvin becomes a great tradition which promotes high levels of education, and at the same time, Calvin himself uh, didn't get around to founding a university. He gets things started with education, but doesn't. Uh, Okay, this is your test. Three thinking tools we have developed throughout this whole whole class. The way to, how do do we do it? What's one of our three thinking tools? These are the, the, the ways that are going to help us think about how we can all get along. Yes? Are we more oriented towards the Father, Son, or Holy Spirit as a community? Yes. <coughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It's to, is, uh, to not think of ourselves as always having the perfect view of the Trinity. Is <laughs> that all of us through temperament, through churches, traditions, all sorts of things, tend toward different directions. And so, Yes. Star for you. There we go. Smiley face. Yes. So always think about that. Because, and, and we as Presbyterians, we as the Reformed, we as the Calvinist tradition tend to emphasize which one? The Father. Yeah, the Father, the sort of organizer, the, the way the person who wants things run decency and good order. Uh, that's sort of like, yeah, there's a sort of household tradition up here in which, you know, God is a father and we're supposed to all run like a well-run household. You know, and that's the way our Presbyterian churches tend to like to see things. And, of course, Pentecostals here. And then those incarnational churches, especially the ones where you walk in and you see a crucifix with Jesus hanging on the cross in pain. You know, that's, those are especially ones that emphasize, you know, the work of the Son. We all do it all, but we, you know, just a way to help us understand other people. What's another thinking tool? Visible and invisible. Oh, you got it. Yeah. Yeah, this is so crucial. And uh, uh, this is one of the things I say that most people don't understand is that, you know, especially in terms of the Roman Catholic and, and us and 
you know, atheists who you talk to and stuff, they think we're all sort of like holier than thou or we're thinking we're better than the world. No, no, we're all sinners. We're all fallen. Our church is simply our attempt to try and be on that pilgrimage to the true church, which is going to be, you know, when the invisible church reigns, okay? So, so yeah, we need to think about this. Always with our church, um, like I say, I work for the Wesleyans. I go to a Presbyterian church. It, it's always funny to me in faculty meetings or when you hear somebody talk, they'll act like the Calvinists are the enemy and, and we're, we follow John Wesley and that's better than you guys in the rest of the world. And it's, Rebecca does the same thing. And we experience this. But to me, like, I love the Wesleyans. I love the Calvinists. We're all just trying, you know. So, so uh, we, can, we can all get along, you know, as, uh, as churches. Because if we understand we're all fallen. And this is what we're going to talk more about, too, next week. Uh, as, a, as a United States, there's a, the idea that the people are fallen. And uh, that's an important aspect of how to run a government. Okay, so what's the third one? You sleeping on me, Paulo? No, okay. Those eyes were just thinking with the eyelids down. <laughs> All right, the third one. I don't know. Well, I think it's that one with those things. It's this one. <laughs> it's that we are visible churches, and we all work with traditions. Uh, Calvin... You know, we, uh, you know, there's this idea of the Protestant Reformation, sola scriptura, or something like that, the Bible alone. And, we, and frankly, the, we're all, all of the Orthodox traditions are working with the Bible. Uh, the difference in large part, I don't want to oversimplify it, but the difference in large part is how much of tradition we take on. Uh, Calvin was quite willing to take the first three or four hundred years of the church as, as you know, the development of the Nicene Creed and things like that is as absolutely essential for Christianity and Orthodoxy too. So we're all working with tradition. The real difference comes with how much of that medieval tradition, especially the rise of saints. And did you notice today that we quoted from the Magnificat in church, which is Mary's song, was the call to worship. See, I grew up in Presbyterian churches, and we, I don't know, that Mary song stuff, we sort of stayed away from, because that's tainted with that medieval Catholic stuff, but, but actually, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of nice, that's a sign of, we're all getting along here, if we can all quote Mary's song, but uh, this idea of uh, traditions, of uh, traditions of how Mary's role, traditions of saints, these are all things that uh, are things that Calvin really rebelled against. Traditions of the sacraments, how these sacraments are administered. Uh, both the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestants, I've tried to point out to you, uh, in the Reformation were trying to organize this because the Catholic Church thought a lot of things were going too wild. And so the Council of Trent is to sort of organize their ideas about sacraments, organize their ideas about saints, organize their ideas about the Bible's authority. And so too is the same in that's what Calvin is doing too. So if we can think in terms of we all have traditions, it's not like one church stands on the Bible and the rest of you guys are all going to hell. It, no, it, it, we're all working with the Bible, and so, so let's all try and get along with it. Other, all, but although there are lots of different 
traditions of handling the Bible and working with it. But the idea that we all want to understand that resurrection, especially uh, that is as it is depicted in the Bible and what that means for us. Any questions about that? When was the Council of Trent? Council of Trent is at the same time as Calvin. When he's writing the Institutes, the Council of Trent is going on. So that's, these are these two things that in the world have become so influential for the last 500 years. is, is a, a much more organized Catholic Church in terms of its thought and doctrine and stuff like that. And Calvin brought a much more organized sense of what Protestants and Reformed people believe. Okay, so those three things is, is if you take anything from our class, uh, uh, these are thinking tools, but if you apply them in almost any situation, like you're at a session meeting or you're talking with your friends who are, you know, some other church or you're going back to Christmas and you're going to the Catholic church of your family or something like that, if you think in terms of these things, it, I think it can help you appreciate all of these Christian traditions and especially see us all as... Uh, visible churches trying to do the best we can to get to the invisible church. All right? Okay. Yes, Kurt. I've mentioned this before, but it's funny because when I was raised in a Roman Catholic church, but when I came here, I started to understand a lot about what all that, yeah. you know, learning and yeah. stuff that they were trying to yeah. get through to me yeah. was about. Yeah. So in... in Retrospect, it's when you take the different traditions, yeah. and if you're exposed to them, you for me at least, it helped really deepen my yeah. faith, yeah. as opposed yeah. to saying, yeah. well, this one's wrong and this one's yeah. right. Um, you know, just like you were mentioning with the, the, the Catholics who tend to emphasize more, you know, mm -hmm. Christ dying on the cross and sacrifice, yeah. stuff like that, here more God the Father. But you take those together, yeah. and it just... Yeah, Bill. it's enriching. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was in a conference in in Mexico City, and and uh, I met a lot of Protestants in Mexico, Mexican Protestants, and uh, they were very defensive against the Catholics. And, and we were talking about this and stuff. And in when you get into you know, especially uh, historically Catholic countries like uh, Mexico, uh, the Catholics are so dominant that they can sometimes make you feel like you don't exist if you're not Catholic. And so that was a sort of, there's a sort of defensiveness and stuff. And we have to just sort of worry about that. Because as, I, as we talked about last time, the Catholics have become this universal political entity around the world. And, and there's many places in the world where they are so powerfully dominant that it's sort of like to be a... a, 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 a Protestant like we are in America, we would feel defensive or... Or not, or not significant. Yeah. I don't know if I'm wrong in saying this, but I think that also I can identify with some with that defensiveness because Catholicism can be like a cultural religion. Right. So you meet all these people that you're right. meeting are Catholic, right. and they don't really right. have any type right. of personal yeah. connection yeah. to the Bible yeah. or to Jesus. Yeah. And that's my experience in Latin America was. I think you can say that, that about any denomination. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that one of the things that those... Uh, I think you can say more about Catholics. I think Catholics... You see, Catholic, Catholic, Okay, first and foremost, we need to remember that we have Protestant denominations. 
But the Catholics are so much bigger than any one denomination. They're like this entity that is wholly different than everything else in the world. And so we're not really comparable in that sense, you know. Uh, so, uh, so it is easy to, to get it, become a cultural Catholic. Yeah. But this church was known for in the 40s and 50s of it, if you were a prominent person in this city, you belonged to, to this yeah. denomination yeah. or this, this, this first press. Yeah. I mean, this was the place you went if yeah. you were a Protestant. It was a, for the movers and shakers. Yeah. And from the stories I've heard, some of those people were very devout Christians and yeah. some were just here because. <laughs> right. You know, right. Pass out your business card. And that was one of the things we need to talk about today is, is, is Calvin is very uh, concerned about cultural Christianity as opposed to a, a true believer Christianity. And this becomes what we call Calvinistic evangelicalism. It's sort of the roots of this sense that, hey, you know, we Christians need to make a conscious choice to change our lives, set up our, you know, our, our churches with serious concern rather than just sort of like falling into it because I'm, you know, uh, born into it or something like that. So let's talk about that and let's talk about um, what happens to Calvinism uh, in, uh, in, especially in the founding of America. This is in the 17th century and uh, this is for, in many ways, the United States, especially our colonial history up in New England, did did more interestingly, and maybe you could say better than anyone else, trying to implement Calvinism, especially there in, in the Boston area when the Puritans came. Um, this is Cambridge, Massachusetts, here. This is uh, Harvard College here, there, in, uh, in its form before the 1700. This is the church, which was always called not a church. What were they called? meeting houses because even to use the term church was to confuse things because the church is the fellowship of people the building is a meeting house okay and notice they consciously work to not make it look like a church man it's going to be a box and uh, we like it as a box you know it's and then the pastor's house would be i don't know which one's the pastor's house but the pastor's house is probably right there and then and then the thing is, you have, you have the town, and then you have the college and the church. So town, church, and education, with, with, it was actually mandated that every town have a uh, sort of a, what we would call like a constitution, a, 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 a contract, a social contract among themselves, in which you weren't allowed to set up your con- town until you had the church contracts first to go with your town's contract. And then with that, you had the promise to start paying for public education from day one. So there was education, church, and town tightly integrated. Um, and these, this was the plan in Puritan Massachusetts. Now, the, these Puritans, let's go on here for a second. These Puritans, uh, in some ways, uh, teaching as the students is really, because people get fixated on things. And uh, people, the Puritans were fixated on this doily thing here, which is called a surplus. Okay, the thing underneath it, that's what Jerry was wearing today, which is an academic gown. It's, I graduated from college, I have an academic gown. You know, that's, that's what that is, it's an academic gown. And so Puritans would wear their academic gown, 
you know, because this is what they are. They're, they're taught uh, liberal arts to help read the Bible. But to wear that, <sighs> you know, that was a symbol of something horrible. And so uh, the Archbishop of uh, England and you know, King Charles the, um, First, who they cut his head off, uh, you know, they, they would send emissaries around to just show up in churches. And if the pastor was wearing this, you're in big trouble. In other situations, or no, excuse me, if your pastor wasn't wearing this, you're in big trouble for, for, for Archbishop Laud and for, uh, for Charles I. But for other guys, if the pastor was wearing this, you were in big trouble. So, so this became just a, you know, this, a point of contention. It sort of balkanized churches was whether, you, whether the pastor is up front wearing that. What's the, what does it symbolize? Well, in, in uh, uh, Catholicism, it symbolizes a special rank, a, a priestly rank. It's priestly rather than the yeah. academic is a little bit more prophetic. Right. The idea that yeah. I stand in line with the prophets. Yeah. Maybe yeah. I don't stand in line with yeah. priests so much. Yeah. But mostly I don't wear that, Rick, because I'm not that secure in my masculine. <laughs> 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 yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, this also just flips people out. You know, throwing that incense around, you know, a lot, a lot of folks didn't like that at all, you know. But the other thing, too, uh, was, okay, here's your sort of standard cruciform church plan in which you entered at the, what's called the west end, and then went to the east end here, and the altar always stood at the very east end, okay. And so the huge fights, it's just almost impossible. During the Elizabethan era, just huge fights. Over, over tearing churches apart and moving the altar, usually sometimes all the way out here, and calling it a table. It's not an altar. It's a table. And so fighting about the words and definitions and the placement of furniture, you know, became a huge issue. This, of course, is a Puritan church. This is in Boston. And you can see that you actually... I, you enter this side, and they purposely twist you sideways when you get inside of it. And then you put the pulpit here. And where's the altar or table? Puritans were very proud of the fact that they used basically a card table. You could fold it up, put it away, bring it out when you need it, because it's just a table. <laughs> and then in our church, what's, what's all up here? The choir. The choir. Right. You see, in uh, Protestant churches, they, they move that choir forward, you know. Uh, in uh, a church like this, the Catholic churches, usually the choir was, you know, long. That's the, you know, those parts there. And the altar was there. So, yeah, it, and this is sort of fun when you get into it. And, you, but, and uh, still architects fight over all these sorts of things. But, but the idea of purifying the church, that's where the Puritans get their name, um, was that they wanted to purify the church of all these Catholic elements, which, frankly, are pretty small-time stuff. Uh, this is Mark uh, 7. Uh, I was reading this this morning, and I go, oh, I'm going to put that in my, my class today, you know. Uh, this is when, you know, Pharisees and scribes come to Jesus and say that he's not, he and his disciples aren't properly washing their hands and washing their clothing and the stuff properly. And Jesus replies, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship me in vain. 
their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. This becomes for Calvin and also for the, uh, this evangelical tradition we're going to be talking about today, really a key thing. It's like we've got to, got to, what are the things that are essential? What are the things that are not essential? Is furniture essential? Is wearing robes essential? Is, you know, all these other things. And, and that this, this kind of verse, Jesus says this kind of thing a number of times. This one's very clear. Uh, these become the issues of which, for Calvin, we can, we can sort of say he, he wanted to simplify and lower the expectations of, of things so that we don't worry too much about uh, non-essential things. This makes sense? Okay. So uh, Calvin really starts that. Calvin sees the Catholic Church is doing all sorts of... But then later on, as the evangelicals develop, they're going to think that, well, Calvin set some rules that maybe we can be a little more looser about, too. Uh, so... This line keeps moving as to where the hypocrite line is, you know. It keep, that's a slippery line out there, you know, for all of us, you know. I, was, I tried to raise my kids so that they would always wear a collared shirt with a tucked-in tail, you know, uh, to church. Because that was my rule, man. And then, dang it, we hire, who was that, Nate, man. Shirt tail out, never, you know, T-shirts. How do I fight the youth pastor in a church? You know, so all right, all right, I give up on my line. You know, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. When you when your pastor starts wearing flip flops, I mean, what can you do? I mean, all right. So I used to wear a tie all the time. I don't wear a tie anymore at all. I'm just giving up. But the uh, the thing is, uh, is that we all we all do this. Uh, we all. Uh, create our human rules, our family, our churches, and stuff like that. And uh, Jesus' call is, I think, to just recognize we have these, they're human. They're, they're not God's rules, and we don't need to be so uh, sticklers, such sticklers about them. Evangelicals are really good at sort of, let's try and find as few rules as possible and try and simplify the whole system to what is effective? Yes, Kirk. Did, did um, the Puritans understand what the different Catholic things were about, or they did, did just not understand them, and they said we just don't want that that part of our thing? I mean, if you go yeah. and learn about, say, incense mm -hmm. in the Catholic, yeah. there's a specific symbolism. Yeah, behind why right. they do the right. incense, right? Yeah. And it, it's Fragrance of Christ. It, 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 it's, it's in the it's, Bible, it's, it's, and it's pretty beautiful. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm just wondering, do they 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 knew what it was? Okay. They knew what the Catholics were saying, or did they, they were just ignorant of it? And they just said they yeah. didn't like it. What well, was your, what was your general choice? right? Okay, and one answer number one is your your question is too broad for us to apply to all Puritans, but right. uh, New England Puritans. Uh, frankly, there's none of us in this room probably as smart as these guys. These guys were the most highly educated society in the world at that time. And uh, 
every pastor had graduated from Cambridge and was widely read and knew several languages and all that. So I wouldn't put myself in any position to criticize a Puritan for not knowing what the Catholics were doing. Now, as the evangelical movement begins, yeah, there's a lot of people who are fighting Catholicism and don't know what they're fighting, you know, or, or fighting against freight, you know, you know, the, there's a, I, I read a bunch, I was doing a, a project in college about circuit riding ministers and stuff, and uh, it's amazing the fights over baptism, whether you dunk, whether you sprinkle, whether you uh, pour, I mean, these guys were like, you were going to hell if you did it wrong type of thing, and this is, 19th century frontier evangelicalism, they're the wackiest bunch of people in the world, and they're still around today. <laughs> it's people who want to, they're fighting over things that you just go, hey, have you read the Bible? You know, you don't need to fight about all of this stuff like that. But uh, the, uh, so the Puritans, one of the reasons I'm picking the Puritans, one of the reasons that I like to talk about the Puritans is because they actually are very cognizant of what they're doing. Uh, they are very very highly educated, and they're they're trying to think this stuff through in a real good way. Yes? I, mean, I guess part of it is, what does it mean to simplify? I mean, if you say, okay, what is absolutely yeah. necessary, we're only going to do what's absolutely <coughs> necessary, yeah. that's different than saying, okay, let's make sure we've got the basics, but then we can do other things knowing that they're the other things, like the incense yeah. can be a way of praying and feeling like yeah. you're entering the presence of God and say, okay, it's not necessary, yeah. but it, it, just like to me, when I think about the Puritans, a lot I think of joylessness. <laughs> they don't want to have any celebrations. They want to be serious, serious. in church and so forth. And there's certainly places for that. Yeah. But it seems like they wanted to just strip down so much that there couldn't be, yeah. yes, more than the simplified. That's places. that... H.L. Mencken famously uh, de defined a Puritan as the having the haunting fear that someone somewhere is having fun, <laughs> <You know? laughs> and that's a, that's the definition of a Puritan. You know? Yes. Where did the, where did the Amish come in here? Oh my goodness. Okay, Amish are an Anabaptist tradition, which come out of a, a sort of third wing of the of the Reformation. Uh, this third wing of the Reformation has become very important for uh, evangelicalism and stuff. It's a, uh, a uh, the Anabaptists thought you should be baptized as an adult, not a child, and yeah. and uh, and then they they went off into more extreme sort of radical forms. <laughs> and the Amish are an ethnic form that was brought here by William Penn to Pennsylvania, uh, but. Uh, Let's not talk about it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so, yes. I want to mention what, what Rebecca mentioned. Yeah. I agree with what she just said in some respects because for me, it always was the Puritans always seem to want to simplify it down to it's all about the preaching. Mm -hmm. okay? It's the it's the preaching mm -hmm. of the word. It's the two sacraments, baptism and yeah. um, the Lord's Supper, and. That that's it. Anything else is is getting in the way yeah. of of yeah. this. And as a teacher, I am I understand that a lot of my students all learn differently. I mean, if I stand up and just talk to to my students, there's a good handful that love it, and they yeah. think, "Oh, Mr. Yeah. Ryan, I love your lecture." Yeah. Yeah. And there's others 
where they just zone out and yeah. they're not going to learn. Yeah. yeah. So the one thing I always kind of struggled with with the Puritans was this idea, what do you do with all these people who don't learn from sitting yeah. and being yeah. Yeah. talked to? Yeah. You know? Because th that's the one thing about some of the other traditions is people learn about God and yeah. this God's story through other means other than just yeah. Being, uh, sermonized. And that's a very important thing. And and one of the things that Protestants, Reformed tradition especially, Puritans, uh, and especially comes down to our Jerry here, is that they are taught how to preach in seminary. The these preaching classes you have, and Jerry's you know got this very in, informed, full idea of what preaching is, and and uh, this becomes for Protestants the big issue is is that we need to preach so that the Holy Spirit can use us, but we need to put a lot into it. We just can't walk into the pulpit and extemporaneously sort of wing it. Uh, we need to actually sort of create these highly crafted, and rhetoric and oratory become hugely important for Protestant education ministers. And, and it's exactly what you're talking about, because, you know, you... The word is not the, my wife tells me this all the time, you know, the, as a teacher and stuff, we, when you just talk, it's not the, that's why I have PowerPoints. <laughs> I have to say, yeah. they were motivated in part, they thought all this other stuff were distractions. They weren't right. always wrong, right. they weren't always right. uh, wrongly thought through, right. or even wrongly done, but they're just distractions. If right. you've come to hear God's yeah. word, what's the other thing that you yeah. need? You just need yeah. to hear God's word. You yeah. don't need a pew, even. Right. Just stand there and hear it, and you're supposed to hear it. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And to sleep with that, no Puritan would light four candles um, on the way through Advent to Christmas. They wouldn't meet at Christmas Eve. I think most of the time they didn't allow Christmas. They didn't allow. It. You could be put in the stocks for yeah. celebrating Christmas. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yes. Yeah, um, and I agree with Kirk. Uh, Myron Tweed always says there's no, more than one door into the church yeah. and he felt yeah. strongly that here these people he knew he would bring them into the choir of course you would sit there and hear the sermon <laughs> but they yeah. would feel the yeah. word of God through yeah. music right. and that would hold yeah. people yeah. into the church yeah. because everybody likes yeah. different things yeah. Nobody but goes you're home. still there hearing Jerry. Nobody goes home humming my sermons. <laughs> yeah. and, and but, but, you know, that yeah. there's more than one door into right. the church. No, I and that's this is one of the beautiful things I think that we as a church, we're doing with a great orchestra plus guitar plus drum. I mean, let's do it. Let's. Let's ex let's let's expand our mentality that we can do it all. We can we can really sort of express, have all these options. And yes, I agree with you that so many people hear the music probably as much as the sermon. Uh, they the and and that music is affecting them. And so that's why we yeah we uh, Protestant churches, evangelical churches have especially emphasized music. You know because of its well, power. It brings up the feelings. Right? And who wrote the books about? How important music was? Yes. Cotton Mather. He, when you're talking fun Puritan, <laughs> Cotton has the reputation of being no fun, but he is actually pretty dang fun. And this idea of the origins of America, his dad, now his dad is no fun. His dad is smarter. His dad's a, just an incredible figure intellectually. 
But Cotton was this young son who was basically an associate pastor all of his life, who, um, who uh, he ran the youth groups, he did, he would, uh, he organized singing in the church so that, so that, uh, and he would pick uh, what we have as, what, what do you call it, section leaders? So he would have during the week, uh, those people who could sing real well meet with him, and he wrote the songs, and he wrote the book about singing, and all that sort of stuff, and then he would distribute them in the congregation. So that there would be people from all the congregation to lead the rest of the congregation in singing. And, and uh, he also did, he's, read the book, it's a lot of fun. He's a really interesting guy, and he really is sort of the model of what becomes Calvinistic evangelicalism. Okay, yes? Was he only singing psalms? Because wasn't that part of the... Yes, it's a psalms tradition, but, but the, his, the Puritans had been very... Uh, antagonistic to organs, antagonistic to instrumental music, antagonistic to all sorts of things, especially like uh, we don't want to get, Cotton broadened it out, okay, but he definitely would have agreed with what you, he actually wrote a book saying that it is music which is going to draw so many people in, you know, um, but yes, it's, he's not, he's not running a worship band, yes. He had to have those leaders section leaders because there was no instrumentation and they better be able yeah. to carry a yeah. tune. And the tune would be called out. Uh, there'd, be a, there'd be multiple tunes, you know, so uh, we're going to use this tune and then we're going to sing this psalm to it and that kind of thing would go on. But I, I think God the Holy Spirit, knowing God is through the Holy Spirit, the mystical tradition of the Catholics had that. Yeah. Which I think is uh, not very part yeah. of yeah. the other two. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yes. We were on an organ tour to Scotland uh -huh. at one point, and we were—I was shocked to learn that the Scottish Presbyterians resisted yeah. uh, allowing organs in church. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. Sinful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, and you, but here again, uh, we all do this. We all have to recognize that we. We pick issues which later on <laughs> is a dumb issue to fight over, you know. And organs was for a long time. <laughs> Another thing the Puritans did, they didn't put heat in their churches. Oh. It's Massachusetts in wintertime. What are you doing, you know? <laughs> but it was sort of like, well, we don't want to put another. And, you know, got mad there. And his generation, his third generation is broadening all these out, going, hey, we're putting heat in. We're getting organs. We're getting, you know, all sorts of stuff changes with uh, this... He's the third generation of these Puritans. I want to point out to you, um, let's go back here very quick uh, to look again at this town. As the towns the first Puritans set up. And uh, this is a very important notion of why I say the Puritans probably did better than anyone else in creating a political entity that followed Geneva and Calvin's Geneva more closely then even Geneva followed Geneva because wow. they really tried to implement the Calvinist principle. The way it worked was is that yeah, the town got its own contract here, and then within the town, everyone was supposed to go to the church or the meeting house, okay? So everyone is supposed to be part of the congregation. Now, the Puritans are not dumb, and so if they needed a blacksmith or something for the town who happened to be something completely wacky and or someone refused to go to church or something like that, they're not going to... They're not going to kick him out of town or anything. We need a blacksmith, so 
you know, you can be an atheist blacksmith in, in Puritan, Massachusetts, and that's you're fine. Okay, but but everyone, most everyone's part of the congregation. Now, being part of the congregation did not make you a church member. Okay, to be a church member, you had to do a uh, what well, was a public relation of your conversion experience. And you needed to stand in front of the congregation and say, and this is uh, women, men, everyone, had to confess to each other there, you know, God convicted me of my sinfulness and, and then I prayed and I had an overwhelming sense of peace and, you know, something like that, okay? And of course, some people could do a really elaborate, really perfect, you know, sort of conversion experience but then others couldn't. It was really sort of like they're embarrassed, they're hard, they can't speak. And so you're always supposed to use rational charity, which is basically give the benefit of the doubt to whatever personal experience people say they had, if it fits within the pattern, that, you know, we're just going to go with it. So, so this is not an exclusivist system. This is not to keep people out. It's to bring everyone in, but everyone to make this move into church membership needs to have a, be able to de declare an experience. Then this group gets treated as the probably elect. See, <laughs> See this is the visible church. This is not the invisible church. And so they actually made it very clear and very, very adamant about this, that you guys are not elect because you're a church member. You are maybe more possibly elect because you had one of these experiences. Okay. But it's these people that they got to vote. See, those people out there didn't get to vote. You see, in town elections and in church elections and in all sorts of things, these are the voters. And that was a way for the... That's the way they wanted the state to be founded on the probably elect. Okay. Any questions about that? Okay, yeah. Wasn't there a halfway covenant coming along somewhere? Oh, gosh. You, you trying to drag me into all these questions. Yes, the halfway covenant. The halfway covenant is a very fun, fun issue that we colonial historians love to talk about because what happens is that a lot of folks are church members, but their grandchildren don't have that experience. And they want their grandchildren to be in the church and voting and even though, you know, and so, so what happens is, is they start to create a, what's called this halfway covenant, which is that they will extend to sort of charity down a generation that you can be a, a member without having that experience if you're, if you're, uh, when you uh, say voting, you're talking about not just voting for church things, you're talking about the voting for the yeah. town. Yeah, the whole town, all town, uh, the whole society, the whole political system of Massachusetts is built upon the probably elect. Not on that, that blacksmith out there. You had to there. understand the Christian, you had to, because, I mean, now people mm -hmm. of any kind can make yeah. any vote yeah. and make any laws. And so there's, there's only one, one rule to vote now. You have to be a certain age, and you have to be a, right. a citizen, but that, those are the only yeah. rules. So you can believe anything and vote now. My point here, though, is just uh, to move along, because we don't want to get, we'll get a little more, more into some of these political questions next, next week when we finish up. But the, the real issue here is, is that they're trying to find 
this, which, which is really Calvin's project. Calvin's project is the visible church needs to understand that it's visible. It's not that end times church, but that we want to have a church that is, as best we can, imitating what that church is going to be. And that creates a tension of which, in Puritan Massachusetts, they actually created a social political system to try and deal with that tension. Yes? I'm just going back to the personal experience and thinking about the grandchildren and so forth. So was it assumed that people would have some sort of distinct moment of conversion? Is that the idea behind the personal experience? And then if you raised, I mean, I don't have a specific conversion story for myself. I'm a Christian now, so I assume. First of all, that becomes a big issue throughout church history is that one single experience or a lifetime sort of like growing experience. These folks here, it's, they're primarily looking for a single experience. But as Cotton Mather, these guys with their rational charity and stuff are quite willing to sort of fudge a lot of that, which, you know, most of us would fit into that fudged area. I was raised in a Christian and never had another thought other than being a Christian. So for me, I can point to a a prayer when I was like 11 years old, but I don't, you know, I, I believed already. I mean, I don't know. So, so the thing is, that sort of thing um, uh, is the kind of thing that uh, they did hope that there would be this conscious turning of your life over, and that would usually be defined as a type of sanctification or something like that. Uh, let me move on here just so uh, we can get quickly here, finish up, is that this evangelical tradition, of which we had this Sunday school class on this book, The Evangelical Story, so this basically this good news, this term evangelical, which is a person who believes the good news, is ultimately a gospel simplicity. Uh, evangelicalism is multi-denominational, multi-institutional, multi supposed to be worldwide, all those, those reasons, largely because one of the things that happens to Protestantism in general, especially within the English-British Empire, is you start to have these great awakenings. And these great awakenings are where the Holy Spirit sort of messes up all of Calvin's church structures and stuff, because everything's going... No, and and so, so there's a lot of questions as to... to you know, how to run churches, how to, how to be, and especially to be missionaries. Because that's one thing that Calvin did not do well. That's one thing the Puritans did not do well. It's, you're not reaching out, being sort of seeker-friendly. You're, you're really sort of, Puritans were great at sort of like fixing their system, but they were horrible at sort of like reaching out to the Indians and things like that. The people who are great at reaching out to the Indians are the Jesuits and the Franciscans and the Dominicans and those guys. And so uh, the evangelical awakenings opened the mind of all Protestantism ultimately to the Jesus' call to the Great Commission, you know, which is to go around the world and spread the gospel, right? And so what is the gospel we're supposed to spread? That becomes a lot of discussion and a lot of the sort of Calvinistic ideas uh, work against it. And one of those Calvinistic ideas is, is how 
predestination works, okay? Because no one, you know, knows how it works in general. But like the, a lot of the evangelical churches began to back off from a type of strict idea of election and move more toward that rational charity that the Puritans were talking about, but then also to the extent where uh, emphasizing free will more and more and more. Okay, so the Calvinistic evangelicalism is the foundation for a lot that developed as evangelicalism, but then it also broadened the Calvinistic tradition, especially on ideas of free will and conversion and, and uh, things like that. Should preachers be educated? Calvinistic tradition was yes. Yes, they need to be educated. Uh, in the, some of the awakening traditions, that became, well, no. The, whole, the preacher should just be someone grabbed by the Holy Spirit, you know. And so, you know, those sort of things really begin to, to change and develop in the 19th century. And then you get to uh, the development of what we call neo-evangelicalism, which is what we're part of today, this post-World War II kind. Henrietta Mears, and then, of course, you know, Billy Graham. Billy Graham's a great model of, of evangelicalism because he was, the, he was one of these guys who was the master at sort of not drawing lines. Um, you know, uh, with Pentecostalism. He would never say Pentecostalism wasn't part of, you know, the, the evangelical tradition and stuff like that. And he wanted to embrace, but on the other hand, he's certainly not part of this, not promoting Pentecostalism in any sort of way. Uh, on issues of free will and, and predestination, he was, let's, let's find a way to talk about these things and get along rather than sort of balkanizing and fighting over them. Because what's essential is people are coming to Christ, not, you know. So in many ways, he became a, a, a master at, uh, at let's, let's pull together, but then let's also embrace the media and move out into the world in ways that no one ever thought possible before. And so uh, this idea of a, um, uh, uh, we have even evangelicalism has very distinct Calvinistic foundations, but at the same time, it has tried to broaden a lot of things in which we don't want to get involved with fighting the things that Calvin fought. On the other hand, is is there is our books like this, which um, evangelicalism in its sort of free-formed ways often comes out as anti-intellectual. And uh, this book here, for good and ill, uh, Mark Knoll's a great guy, but he, he uh, and used to pastor Mark Knoll, but uh, Mark Knoll um, really does promote in this book a Calvinistic tradition. Evangelicals need to have a, a strong educational component to who we are. And uh, he, uh, he promotes in this this a Calvinistic tradition. So, um, like, you go to a college like where our, Rebecca and I teach at, uh, it is a Wesleyan college which would promote education as a sort of very important aspect of being um, a Christian and being equipped to be a Christian missionary. Um, and that kind of thing is still... 
I see that as a distinct, the sort of ongoing, most important ongoing distinct Calvinistic part of the tradition. But I could be wrong. You have any thought I wanted to just say? No, I, I just want to make a connect. Well, yeah, obviously I know Mark. Mark and Lois went to Wheaton College. Go, go back one screen where Henrietta Mears is on. I just want to make a connection. And you know Grant Weffer. I mean, you know all these people. But Henrietta Mears was at Hollywood First Presbyterian, which at one time was the largest Presbyterian church in the country. And we were the second largest. And the two churches knew each other. Henrietta was part of the connection. Yeah. But at, at this morning in sermon, I mentioned, more than mentioned in the witness, Ellie Stanley. Yeah. I remember my first meeting with Ellie. I walked in this door. I'm meeting the congregation. I'm not even sure I've been elected yet, but I'm meeting the congregation. Ellie meets me at the door like this is a, this is a delegation. And there's three or four women behind her, and she says, "Do you know who Henrietta Mears is?" Like this would be the litmus test of whether or not I'm going to be an acceptable pastor. And I go, "Yeah, I, I, you know, I didn't know her. She's before my time, but um, I know who Henrietta Mears is, and I know what she's done." So, so you know about Forest Home, don't you? I go, "Yeah, I know something about Forest Home." Well, I'm on the women's auxiliary. Your wife's going to want to be on the women's auxiliary. <laughs> I know Henrietta Mears. And, and, and that is the Henrietta Mears tradition, is one hard-charging woman. Yes. Uh, but especially in terms of what I, I didn't mention when I put it up here, was she was the Sunday school leader, uh, Sunday school director. 5,000 people yes. in their Sunday school system in, in, at Hollywood Presbyterian Church. But the thing was is that this idea that, that evangelicalism needs to not draw lines, but we do have to reach out to the world. And we need to do that world. We need to, the Calvinistic line in it is, it, it needs to be deeply biblical. And if it's going to be deeply biblical, we have to educate people on how to read the Bible and work with the Bible. And so education is crucial to the spreading of the gospel in an evangelical well, way. Well, yes. I, want, I want to say that she was part of the founding of Fuller Seminary. But there was a time in her day, we had nine Presbyterian seminaries in the country. Three of the presidents had been in her Sunday school class. Yeah. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 And the founder of Young Life and the founder of Campus, Campus Crusade, Crusade for Christ, Christ and all that stuff. Yes. Just a first prez with them. When I was in high school and we went to the high school conference at Forest Home, we always wanted more buses going up than Hollywood Press. So then finally we got, we yes. all had matching t shirts, the guys were in yellow. And we were in white, and we would take over one whole side of um, Hormel Hall. And every night we were a different pattern. We were striped, or we were striped this way, or every other. But we wanted to always outdo them. And we won most of the time. Okay. All right, that's, that's what we want to end class with today. It's a good fight between Hollywood Press and us. All right, all right, let's... Uh, Let's, let's finish with prayer. Uh, this sort of got a little uh, at the end, but, uh, but there's a big question, which is what are these Calvinistic tendencies that come through into evangelicalism? Calvinism is making a, uh, a revival within evangelicalism, and we could talk about some specific things, but uh, really what I think is the most important sort of Calvinistic thing is that educational idea, especially the, having Sunday school and, a, and an educated laity who reads your Bible on your own so that you then can be the ministers who go out and spread the gospel in the world. It's not up to just the priests or the Catholic church in some, some way. It's, it's our job. It's, a, it's the people's job to get out there and serve the gospel. Carol, why don't you pray for us?
What? Oh, yeah. Oh, I just said amen. Amen. <laughs> Do I have an amen? Yes, amen. Good. All right, good. All right, good. <laughs> yeah, go, Carol. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this class, for Rick and um, Henrietta and all those who've come before us, including Ellie, Stanley, and, um, and Calvin. And we thank you so much, Lord, uh, that you have brought these leaders um, to help educate us today and we thank you especially for your word and for the fact that you do call each one of us to be your messengers and your witness to your son our lord and savior jesus christ in whose name we pray amen amen, amen. amen.